from the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Olson. And I'm your other host, Yvonne Villarreal. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. And today, we are so excited to have Shira Haas as our guest on the show. She stars in the Netflix series Unorthodox. It follows Esti Shapiro, a young Orthodox Jewish woman living in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, who, spoiler alert, runs away to Berlin to start a new life. We talk about Shira singing on set and why she thinks so many people loved Unorthodox. And she also told us about her renewed love for The Sopranos. I think people maybe are kind of tired of only seeing themselves on screen. It's way more powerful to see someone who's different and be like, oh, it's not that different. You know, it's very, very powerful, at least as I see it. And I feel like the world is very changing in the last few years and also seeing it. Yvonne's conversation with Shira is coming up in just a couple minutes. COVID-19 is moving fast, and so are LA Times journalists. Our job is to separate fact from fiction, because you also help spread the truth when you are informed. Because in a society where we all have to stand six feet apart, the LA Times is our connection. It's become our community. We're going to be here giving you information to offer a little bit of clarity. Stay safe, be informed, take care of one another. We'll get through this. Subscribe at latimes.com. I'm looking forward to our conversation with Shira Hasevan. But first, let's turn things over to our critic, Glenn, for Glenn Whip's Awards Minute. I'm a member of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, and we recently gave our Best Picture prize to Steve McQueen's Small Acts Film Anthology. It's five movies. They're all centered in London's West Indian community, starting in the mid-60s, going through the 80s. And Steve McQueen made them for the BBC. So even though three of the five films premiered at the New York Film Festival, they were originally intended and and have been airing on television. In this year where we're kind of watching everything at home right now, the lines are continuing to blur between film and television. What is a movie? What is a television series? And here is the Los Angeles Film Critics Association giving its Best Picture Prize to a TV series. What's going on? And to that, I would say what's going on is that we're honoring the best movie achievement of the year. And you can watch them individually and they're all great, but taken as a whole, they're quite powerful. The best news, you can watch them right now. Add them to your queue in Amazon Prime. And um, I think you really enjoy it. Thank you, Glenn. And now, Yvonne, let's get to your interview with Shira Haas. Besides talking about Unorthodox, I'm so glad you asked her about the movie Asia, which premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival this year, where she actually won Best Actress. And I, I can't wait for it to be released here. Yeah, you know, she's gotten so many accolades already for that role and for her performance on the Israeli show Sheetzel. Even though Shira is new to a lot of American viewers, she is already quite well-recognized in her home country. And we talk a lot about navigating fame during a pandemic in our conversation. Well, let's get to it. 
Shira, thanks so much for joining me. So tell me how life in Tel Aviv is during the pandemic. How have you spent your time in quarantine? Yeah, yeah, I'm mostly at home. We had some quarantines along the way. Right now, it's better you can go out and do your stuff. But it's still, of course, everyone is staying safe as much as possible. And I'm where, where you see me right now, the people cannot see me just here. But this is basically my place for the last few months. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Are you like me where I've been in this bedroom for I don't know how many months down? I'm just like, I want to redecorate, but I don't want to redecorate. What's the point? But I just I see everything differently. Like everything bothers me in a different way now because I see it so often. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know every corner right now, every little stuff. It's actually I moved here like a month or two months ago. So yeah, it's actually a good timing to move because I get to know this place very, very well. Too well, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Did you take up any new hobbies? Yeah, I mean, I, I always had like hobbies of like making collages. I love the Photoshop design a little bit. So I have like on my wall that you cannot see right now, but I have so many collages and pictures that I put on my wall and I did it too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I love it. It's it's also like to create something when you think about it. Definitely. Sort of art. I want to believe in my eyes, at least. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, Unorthodox premiered at the beginning of this worldwide pandemic and you received high praise for your performance. How has it been handling this level of attention from inside your home? To be honest, I mean, of course, the best thing is to see people face to face and not like on Zoom when you have delays as we sometimes have even now. And of course, I also love hugging people and, you know, everything is different and there's nothing better than seeing people and interacting people face to face. But I must say that if I want to look at the bright side, I mean, there's something good or safe with what happened because that's a lot to process everything that happened in the last few months and all the amazing things and the love and the interviews and everything and all good stuff. But I think because it's so new, I think in a way to do it and to have it inside your walls and your safe place and with the people you love, in certain ways, it's even like better or safer and it helped me and it's still helping me to process it, I think, in a way. You can look at it that way. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think it probably helped like the word of mouth also like to spread the word about the series because people had the time to watch it and were hearing from their friends. I mean, that's how sort of I came across it of like recommendation from one of my coworkers. And really now I had the time to like sit down with something and not be distracted and just really focus. What sort of feedback did you get? I mean, people like Kelly Clarkson were tweeting about this series. <laughs> I know I'm not so good at Twitter, but I saw her tweet and I was freaking out. Uh, <laughs> no, amazing people wrote to me, really people that I admire and also people that are not famous, but really from all over the world, which is amazing. Like you said, also the pandemic and people at home, it makes a lot of people to watch it. And it's just amazing. I mean, I, I did this TV series and I really believed in it. And I thought it's universal, even though it's on a specific community and a specific story. I myself that I come from such a different background from ST, I saw myself while reading it, I saw myself within ST. And I really hope that other people will feel the same way. 
But I never imagine it will be as much. I mean, we get messages from people from so many different countries and so many different backgrounds and ages and religious and non-religious and Jewish and Muslims. And it's just, it got to so many people and it's, it's amazing. It's better than we ever dreamed of, I guess. Yes, really, I'm grateful for that. Was there a moment when you realized the show was having this sort of moment itself, like the way people were responding to it? Was there like a moment where you realized, oh, people are watching this in a big way? Yeah, of course, there were like the, the big things. But I think that it's in the small things that I really realized that. I mean, I remember walking out to my balcony, I think for like, I don't know for what reason. And suddenly I looked out and it was lockdown in Tel Aviv. So everyone were at home. And suddenly I looked to like the other buildings and I saw on their living rooms, on their TV screens, my face in like so many <laughs> different apartments. And I was like, no way. And I think this was like a small moment that it kind of like settled in. I think that was like my first realization. <laughs> and it was a very cute moment, definitely. <laughs> You've got to keep a diary of these kinds of moments. That's like such a weird thing to sort of witness seeing your faces on screen. Definitely. Yeah, maybe this this podcast is kind of like my diary. Let's go through all of these moments. I have a few. <laughs> <laughs> well, just keep it for you. Yes, exactly. Well, for those who are unfamiliar, Unorthodox is inspired by Deborah Feldman's memoir of the same name, and it provides this rare glimpse inside the Hasidic world in its story of a woman looking for her place in the world and struggling to find it. And you play Esti, the young Hasidic woman. She was born and raised in Williamsburg, and she's sort of desperate to flee her restrictive community for a chance at independence. The series flashes back to sort of explain the circumstances that led to like her dramatic break. But something that struck me is it felt at times like I was watching a documentary, like the way you inhabit the role. It's just so it was such a beautiful performance. So tell me what your conversations were like with Deborah about her experience. Like, what did you latch on to to sort of get inside her? Thank you so much, first of all. Actually, I've met Deborah, Deborah Feldman, that the story is inspired by. I mean, I only met her after we started filming, not before. I mean, I've read her books not one time, not two times, like multiple times over and over again. If I'll show you the copy, I have so many marks and things that I was writing on, which I, I don't recommend doing it on books in general, but, you know, I had to. Um, and I saw like tons of interviews that she, she was doing, but I only met her after we started filming and we texted each other, of course, but it was a decision. It was like we, we decided before because first of all, the story is it, it's very much inspired by her story, but it's also very, very different, especially like the story in Berlin. When you see that she's living, it's really completely different. And, and it was really, really important for me to take a lot from Deborah, which I did and I, I learned everything I possibly could, but at the same time, not to try to imitate anyone or Deborah or someone else, but to really bring Esther Shapiro, you know, to life. So I saw a lot of interviews and I've read the books. And of course, I also read like many articles as well and saw interviews and talked with other women and people who've left their communities. And I just took inspiration as much as I could from many places. How do you think you're own identity helped to shape the character? Uh, well, 
I feel the fact that I am from Israel and the fact that I am familiar from a very different aspect in a very different place with like Hasidic word or religious word, I think it sort of helped. I mean, I didn't know this word of Satmar and I had to do a lot of uh, research on that. But the fact that I knew a little bit, it also helped, of course, to approach the project and know some things. But it also helped because it was really important for me and not only for me, but to come to this story from a very not judgmental place. And I had a lot of empathy to the character and the word, not necessarily this, but the religious that she's coming from. And I think the fact that I knew a little bit about this word and about like different aspects of this word helped me to it. And maybe even like, I don't know Yiddish, for example, I had to learn it for the show, but my grandparents talked, uh, I mean, when they were very, very young. So I always had this connection as well. And this, I really wanted to tell this story also in order kind of like, to honor them and their history in a way. And they're also Holocaust survivors as Essie's families are. So, I mean, I did have like kind of like my own historical connection to it. But of course, in addition to it, I had to learn a lot and to explore a lot of like, yeah, other sides of myself in order to be Esty. Yeah. There's a moment early in the series when Esty has made her way to Berlin and she joins this group of friends as they go to Lake Wansee and she slowly submerges herself into the water and it's a beautiful moment, a powerful moment. And it's like we're we're seeing her being liberated at the sight of her community's trauma. What do you remember about shooting that scene? Oh yeah. I first of all that was on the last shooting day, which is interesting because on the first shooting day we had the shaving scene, <laughs> which I'm, I'm kind of like losing my hair. And then on the last shooting day of the whole TV series in Berlin, we had this scene when I'm like taking the wig off and throwing it into the water. So I think it was, it wasn't on purpose, but it was, I think, a beautiful closure to the whole shooting <laughs> experience. As you said, it's a very important scene. It's always has been. I remember even when reading, I was like circling it because I think it's really kind of like, the first moment that we see Esty and then she feels herself saying goodbye in a way to her whole self. That's like the first moment she's experiencing a lot of battles and challenges after that. And she has a lot of things to go through. But this is really the first step towards this journey. And it's a very, very symbolic uh, moment. And, you know, the hair and also the outfits and everything is really, it's showing kind of like her emotional journey as well. And by losing, you know, that wig and throwing it into the water in a very gentle way, by the way, it's like saying, thank you. Now I'm going to figure out who I am. And it's not necessarily removing all the past and denying it. No, even though and with everything I am and I was, I'm still going to be a better self to myself if I make myself clear. Yeah. Not to make light of that powerful moment, but... As someone who never looks graceful in the water, how did you manage to look so graceful in performing that scene? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, first of all, it was a very, very, very hot day in Berlin. It was like summer and it was super, super hot. And I was wearing those tights and the wig and lots of layers. So I was looking forward for this moment. And it was also at the end of the shooting day and at the end of the whole production. So it was... 
so beautiful and we had such an amazing team really it's so important to say that and like I said it was the last day so we already had kind of like our relation together and our chemistry and it was I also had almost like I think one take because it's one week right everything was magical everyone were so concentrated and it's also thanks to them it's important to say well Esty is feeling this tension between, you know, self-expression and following the rules and like what it means to be herself. How was that to explore? Like, did it trigger something in you? Did it cause you to reflect on the ways like you identify with that? I mean, when I, I first got the script and I was like so scared because I thought to myself, how can I, will I or can I relate to a character and to a woman who's very different from me. I come from a different background. I'm different from her. I mean, how will it be? And then I started reading it and I suddenly even forgot in a way where she's coming from. And if you will watch Unorthodox again, which I recommend, <laughs> you won't even hear one time the word uh, Satmer, for example. And I think it's not by accident. I really think, yes, it, like, I mean, like I said before, it is a story about a specific community and about rituals and you can't ignore it, of course, but it is a universal story. I mean, I totally saw myself within Esti, this urge of like finding yourself. This is something super universal that I think we're all, and this is why also the TV series touched so many people because we're all kind of like aiming to do that and in order to find yourself and to, to find your voice and Esty is also finding her voice through art, through music, which is something that I can totally relate to, like finding yourself through acting, through my <laughs> kind of art. Well, as you mentioned, I want to revisit one of those closing scenes from the finale, which is when Esty performs for her audition into the music conservatory. And she's originally supposed to play piano, but switches things up and sings instead. How was it shooting that scene? I mean, you've sung before in your work. You did so in The Zookeeper's Wife. So how did it feel to sort of do this again? Wow, yeah. I mean, every time people ask me what was the most challenging scene, I always say that and I'm surprised. But it really was because, first of all, it's such an important scene. I feel like I say it on every scene, but I mean it. I mean, <laughs> no, because it's a very symbolic scene. I think if you haven't watched the show and you've seen this scene, it's really sums up the whole thing. Because like I've said before, it's a TV series about a woman who's finding her voice. And in that scene, she's literally finding it. I mean, she's even surprising herself from what is coming out of her. She tells Yankee later, you don't know a lot of things about me. I myself don't know a lot of things about me. And this is the moment which is like, epiphany, I don't know how to call it. And it is such an important scene. And the singing was live. <laughs> and it was like in front of so many people. I mean, I remember I was so stressed. And the fact that Esty is also stressed in that scene helped me because I wanted to get into it, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, my voice was shaking and my mouth was dry. And I felt as if I'm in an audition. I mean, I told myself, come on, Shra, you've got the role. You will have some takes after that one. But every take, one after the other, I was very, very emotional in doing it and singing it. And also the song is the same song that she heard in the wedding while walking to the chupa. And it's a song that also only sang by men. It's forbidden to women to sing it. I felt a lot of responsibility that day. And I think in a strange and obvious way, it also helped the scene because what you see there is real. <laughs> 
What was the night before shooting that scene like? Like, were you in the bathroom practicing in the mirror? Oh, yeah. Or were you like, I don't want to practice. I just want to not think about it. Oh, I practiced. I practiced a lot. <laughs> no, yeah. I know Amit who plays Yankee. He was, back then, he was like my neighbor. We were like having like an apartment right next to each other. And he told me after the production, which I'm so happy, he told me after that, that he used to hear me all the time practicing this song <laughs> and singing the song and you know it's not only a song it's this song is a scream it's really it's, she's screaming her scream she's finding her voice with all her power and and i was screaming in my apartment i must admit <laughs> and yeah i was definitely practicing it i didn't work with like a singing coach on that scene for example on that song or i didn't work with anyone on that song because Maria Schrader, the amazing director, she wanted it to be raw. So I only practiced it myself and I gave it my own interpretation, but I definitely practiced it, of course, with all of my heart. <laughs> well, it showed it was really quite the scene. Well, playing someone from a widely misunderstood background is a complex undertaking. And while the series was praised among secular Jews, it has received some pushback from members of the Orthodox community. And I just wonder, is that something you pay attention to? Is it important to understand those criticisms? Or do you just have to look at what the central point of telling the story was about, which is this woman finding her voice? I mean... I had two goals when I wanted to tell this story. One, and the most important one, is of course about a woman who's finding her voice and to give strength to women and men and everyone and to myself even in order to achieve it. The other thing, the other goal is to really show a complex picture. I can talk not only on my behalf. I mean, it was so important to everyone to show the community and everything like in the most complex way, not just black and white, but to show the things so accurately as much as possible in this specific story. Also Yankee, for example, this is a good character for an example because he does mistakes and you judge him, but you also really, really love him. And you also have Bobby and you also have some scenes and moments and warmth. I mean, it was important for us to also show this complexity because for like a moral reason, but also because it's not interesting to show just black and white. And as for what you said, of course, there were uh, people who criticize it and I can totally understand it, totally. It's not easy for people to see it, especially if they're coming from this place. And I think it's also part of art, you know, we're telling a story, we're telling Esty's story. Of course, it's not the story of every woman out there in the, these communities, but it's a real story. And we have a goal to say it and people will always have something to say. And this is okay. I think this is also an important part of like telling stories to shake people, to bring things to the table, to even have like arguments. I think it's part of it and I totally respect it. And I, I mean, I was ready for it as always with projects that I aim or did or aiming to do. Definitely. Yeah. You know your smart, funny friends who always seem to have the best celebrity gossip? I'm talking about the ones who always know what you should be watching or reading or listening to. But what if you could pick their brains every week? 
Pop Chat from CBC is a brand new podcast that does exactly that and feels like spending time with your best friends. You can join in the weekly group chat every Wednesday and subscribe for free on the CBC Listen app or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Some of your most powerful moments in the series are completely without dialogue, whether it's being submerged in the lake or the haircut scene or the time that she has sex with her husband. And you've said that you like when you can remove lines from a script, like when it's okay. Like there are times when you can't, obviously. But so when did you realize that was something that you like to do? Like, when did that become a sort of practice for you of finding those moments when that can be achieved? Yeah, like you said, it's not always, and it also depends on the project and like the language of it and also the characters. I mean, I had some characters that didn't shut up, so of course not. (laughs) But, But it's something that if it suits and if it suits the genre and the character, it's something that I really, really love doing. I think it really started even when on my first project, it was a a movie called Princess and it was also a very artistic and dramatic story. And I was only 16 and I remember a lot of times the director came to me. She told me, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to say anything. Just look to the camera, look to your partners and think about it. And you need to see how powerful it looks. You won't believe it. And I was like 16. I was like, okay. And then I saw it and I also saw it in different projects, not only myself. And I saw how powerful it is. And it's also so realistic. I mean, in real life, we're not always saying what we think, right? I'm not talking like now in this podcast, but in real life, in real situations, we're not always explaining ourselves very well to other people, not necessarily even to ourselves. So I think these are the most powerful moments when I see movies. This is my favorite things when I watch a project to see these moments. I mean, I think it brings a lot of complexity and of course, only if it, it's justifying, if you have something to say without saying, but it definitely has its power. Yeah. We should just sit here for one minute in silence so the listeners can just guess how we're looking at each other and what we're conveying in that look. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> we can't do it it's too much it's too much <laughs> we can't do it no no we were laughing we were holding our last years um, <laughs> well as you mentioned Amit Rahav who plays your husband Yankee you have known each other prior to working on this right like for quite a while did you have a lot of conversations sort of dissecting these characters together? Yeah, we knew each other. We know each other for like over 10 years already. He's a good friend of mine. And we always like made a joke, not a joke. We always said like that we need to act together. We need to have a project together. And then it's like, boom, it happened like bigger than we thought, right? <laughs> Big time. I was kind of like in a final decision that it, I will be Esti. And I had some like audition with young kids to see like a chemistry test. And I remember we had like an audition together and the night before we just called each other and did our lines. I mean, I really wanted it to be him. And he got the role, not because of me. I didn't say anything, got the role because he's like the best actor ever. Still, we were so, so happy. 
And we talked a lot about our characters, even before we were at Berlin, when we were in Tel Aviv, we talked about the book after we've read it and about the script. And then in Berlin, of course, on rehearsals, and we've talked about things. And I mean, he's always saying he has his joke. And I, I totally agree that we talked on set in like four languages, which is English, Yiddish, Hebrew, and telepathy. I hope I say it correctly, but it's, <laughs> but it's true because we had such a good connection that we could just look at each other and knew immediately like what we think. And it's just the greatest feeling to work with such a good friend, especially with so much emotional and intense scenes together, definitely. Well, this series is only four episodes, but it manages to explore a lot, like Estee's marriage, her sexuality, her relationship with her family and her religion. It's a lot of, I would imagine, work to tackle that sort of emotional turmoil. So how is it pulling out the Estee who's who's sort of emerging out of a sense of repression and you're doing so not shooting in order, as I think you mentioned, like not everything is going in linear order. So how was it sort of remembering where she's at at the time that you're shooting and sort of finding your way into her? So I had two scripts. That's actually something I never shared, but I don't mind. I had two scripts. I had one script of like the past, of Williamsburg, you can say, and one script of Berlin. And it really, really cleared my mind and helped my mind because that way I really had everything chronological. So when I've read everything from not like the script is written from like how I order it, first the past and then the present, and it really, really, really helped me. And yeah, I mean, every scene you need to remind yourself where you're coming from. And we've worked so much on those scenes and with the Yiddish and the languages. And I mean, there's a lot to handle with, of course, in this TV series and there's a lot of materials, but everything is very, very very specific at the same time because it's such an emotional journey. Every scene is and moment is so symbolic and it's like another step in her journey. Also for me, also for the other actors and director, which really Maria knew my lines as well, I think, until this day. I mean, it was very, very clear to us at what stage you are. And if it wasn't, we had like amazing team that reminded us or we reminded them and yeah. Well, I mean, people are also, you know, once the series ended, people still had so many questions. Did she get into the school? What is her life like now with a baby? Um, did she have the baby? Would you do a season two? And do you think about where she is right now? I mean, I also ask myself these questions. I have some answers to them. Not like I, I didn't write the script, so, so I don't know if it's true, but I decided. <laughs> You know, one of the Tell questions, us. yeah, one of the questions that are always like coming back is like, will she be with Yankee? Will she be with Robert? I think she'll be with Esty. You know, I think she needs to go through a lot of things to find herself until she'll be with someone else. And you know, this TV series was always meant to be one season and four episodes, always from the start. So there won't be a second season. Of course, I'd love to be Esther Shapiro. I mean, I miss this character a lot. But it's, it always was supposed to be like that. And I think this is the way it builds. And at the end of the show, you don't have answers for everything, like you said, but you do have this feeling that like, I don't know what will happen, but I have faith in this girl. She'll be fine. She can do it. So this was what important for us to bring, even if not everything is answered. Mm -hmm. That's true. 
but we want more. So make it happen. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll tell I'll Netflix. give you the number yeah, we'll of tell the Netflix. producer. Well, this, okay. this year you also starred in the film Asia, which is an Israeli drama that sort of traces how a teenager's relationship with her mother intensifies after she falls ill. And you play the teenager with like degenerative motor disease. Both Esti and Vika are characters trying to take control of their bodies. And it's in different ways, like Esti's forcing herself to endure painful sex to conceive. And Vika is facing like this future of pain and deterioration. So I wonder, like, what did you learn from how they each face this sort of problem? This is interesting. It's actually beautiful. I've never thought about it that way. I think they're both going through these journeys of discovering themselves and discovering what's important for them in life. Esti is doing it, of course, by getting to this edge that she cannot take it anymore and she leaves everything and face all the challenges she's going through and going one after the other and choosing and, you know, and, and doing it and finding herself. And Vika, it's kind of like, the circumstances made her and her mother facing it. It's really a story about how like death brings a lot of life to our life. So I think by these circumstances, she still, even though it sounds like she doesn't, she still has a lot of choice. And during this reality, she chooses life. So I think, yeah, I mean, these two characters from very different aspects taught me a lot about like life and choices and what we do with our time and with our freedom in a way. Esti is finding her freedom, but also Vika is finding her freedom. That's time in the world, her last freedom. She's finding it through her mother, through her relationship with her, through love, basically. They both are. So that's a very, very important lesson to learn, definitely. Well, and Asia won't hit U.S. theaters until next winter, is I think what I read if we reach the ability to return to movie theaters, how are you feeling about this moment happening in film and TV? I mean, it's happening in all industries, but you're in the film and TV industry. What is it like to be in this sort of limbo and not have your projects seen in the way you intended them to be seen? I want to believe that, I mean, there will be some solution at the end. And I really, I cannot complain too much because the movie was at Rebecca and won several awards. And also now at the Israel Academy, it won. And this is the representation of Israel to the Oscars. So a lot of good stuff that are happening. And I believe that in one way or another, cinema, it's here to stay. So I'm not worried about that. But of course, like every actor, I mean... We do our job and sometimes when I'm into a project and working and filming, I'm so concentrated in what I'm doing that I forget that it will get to people. But eventually it gets to people and, it, and this is the goal of it, not just to make art, but also to reflect it to people, to make people talk about it. So of course I'm looking forward to it and I, I, hope, I hope it will happen soon in one platform or another. And, you know, it's very frustrating, but we have to stay positive because this will pass. One way or another, it will pass and cinema will stay. So that's the attitude. Well, I mean, you talked about this earlier, like you're having this moment at a time when we're all at home. And like you said, you won the Tribeca's Award for Best Actress for Asia. You were nominated for an Emmy. And all this is happening when as things are going digital. And so you're kind of like missing 
like what it's like to be in front of people or at these shows? Like, who do you wish you could be running into on like the red carpets and stuff if you were able to experience it the way you normally would? Wow. I mean, what will happen once we'll have red carpets? How will we talk to people? Do we even remember? No, I'm kidding. I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, I have a lot of idols. I have a lot of people that I would love to meet even like all the nominees that I was next to on my on my category I mean Regina King and Octavia Spencer and Kerry Washington and Caitlin Shedd I mean it's women that I admire I was so so honored to just be on the same list with them so if I could see them in real life and the red carpet and tell them how honored I am <laughs> to be next to them that could have been great and of course I mean other actors and directors that I admire that I also very, very grateful to get the chance to see some of them online. But like we said, it's not the real thing. And there's nothing better than like connecting to people in real life. Well, I can't end this conversation without talking about Shitzel, which is a series that follows a religious Haredi family in Jerusalem. And it was a hit in Israel before it was brought over to Netflix, where it developed quite the following how has it been to see these two series attract a global audience in this way? Oh, yeah. You know, Stissel, I've started filming the first season when I was like 17, which is crazy. And then the second season, I was about 19, something like that, 20. And now we finished filming the third season. I mean, it takes a lot. And it was out when I was very, very young, the first two seasons. And then only after like a while, I think, Two years or so, it was on Netflix and it like also exploded in the U.S., which was very unexpected because it is a very intimacy series about like a family in Masharim in Jerusalem. And again, it's just so beautiful, like in Unorthodox. And here, even more because it's in Hebrew and Yiddish and it's such a small TV series, how it's universal, how good art and complex characters can connect us all, you know, and the understanding that no matter where we are or who we are, what language we're talking, we all want to feel belong and loved and we have our dreams and failures and everything and this is universal. The fact that you see it on TV series and even when you see it on TV series and you see someone who's different from you, who's going through such thing as you are, I think it's even more powerful. I think people maybe are kind of tired of only seeing themselves on screen. It's way more powerful to see someone who's different and like and be like, oh, it's not that different. You know, it's very, very powerful, at least as I see it. And I feel like the world is very changing in the last few years. And you can see it also in Casa de Papel and, and Fauda as well and other TV series. And I can go on. It's, it's happening, which is great. Well, Shira, before I let you go, we're all watching more things than usual. Tell me what you recommend, what you think I should watch. What have you been watching? Do you like documentaries? I love everything. Tell me. Okay. Have you seen on Netflix, actually, uh, Dick Johnson is Dead? This is so good. It's so good. It's brilliant, actually. It's also funny and it's also moving and sad and touching and one of the best documentaries I've seen in the last years, and I love documentaries, so this is so, so good. And I also re-watched The Sopranos um, during this quarantine, so if you haven't watched it, go and do it now. 
Oh, and I also love I May Destroy You, which was brilliant. And I can go on, but you know, <laughs> these three are great. Who's your favorite character from The Sopranos? Carmela, of course. Come on, come on. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> her nails are so epic. Ugh. Exactly. Everything about her, everything. <laughs> Even her flaws, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yvonne, Unorthodox is one of those shows that came out way back in the beginning of the pandemic, if you can remember that far back, and really got popular through word of mouth. Is there anything that you've been watching lately uh, that you turn to because of word of mouth? Yeah, before I share what I'm watching now, I will say that that is actually how I found Unorthodox. You know, our colleague Meredith Blake was writing about it, and she was like, you should watch this show. It's only four episodes. And I heard four episodes, and I was like, okay, I can devote my time to you. Uh, but the show that I'm watching now is Flight Attendant, and that's just because I've been seeing so many people chat about it on social media. And, you know, I sort of get into this hole of watching shows that I'm writing about that it can be hard to see what else is out there. And this is a show I didn't write about. So I was like, okay, enough people are talking about it. I need to watch it myself. And it's been quite the ride. And, you know, it was just renewed for a season two. So that should be interesting. How about you? What are you watching? I've been watching the uh, Amazon anthology series Small Acts, that it's five films directed by the filmmaker Steve McQueen, and one in particular, Lover's Rock, is just so beautiful. And it's interesting that the show is kind of like short-circuited people's thoughts on like what's TV, what are movies, because these really do feel like five complete films. Lover's Rock is about a house party in in London in, in the 80s, and it really does just take you back to like you know, dancing, an evening, like what it's like to touch someone's elbow. It's really just, it's so beautiful and exciting. It's, I, I'm really enjoying it. That sounds like a time capsule. Like, I don't even know when the next time is that I will feel comfortable at a house party. I, I will be suited up. Like, there will be no touching of elbows. Like, there will be a lot of eye contact, though, because we'll have the mask on and that's all we can use to verbalize, I guess. But this idea of what is TV and film, like how much do you think we're going to be talking about this in 2021 as things sort of change with releases and release strategies? Well, it's so funny because I feel like we've been having that conversation for like a good few years now, and it seemed like it had kind of sorted itself out in a lot of ways. But then I think because of the pandemic and especially with that recent news from Warner Brothers that all their movies are going to be premiering simultaneously on their HBO Max streaming site, that suddenly we're like back into the middle of having that conversation. And it, it really does seem like a sort of a perennial. On the one hand, it seems like just a purely semantic argument. What does it really matter? On the other hand, there are practical concerns for awards bodies and for people who write coverage. Like, are you going to write about it, Vaughn? Am I going to write about it? And so it does matter, but it kind of also doesn't matter. And I think that makes it just perfect fodder for a conversation we're going to be having all through 2021. We love a good debate. We love a good debate. But, you know, I'm looking forward to being back here with you next week for another episode. Um, and it'll be our first uh, episode of The Envelope in the new year. So tell me who's up next. Well, I sat down to talk to Kemp Powers, who wrote the screenplay for the film One Night in Miami. It's an adaptation of his own play. And he also co-wrote and co-directed the new Pixar film Soul. I want to preface it by saying it's fiction 100% informed by fact. Like taking every single thing I know about each of these four men and have learned about each of these four men in the moments leading up to 
and the moments right after that night make characterizations of them that's as realistic as humanly possible and form the debate around that. Get that chat with Kemp in our very next episode. The Envelope, the podcast, is hosted and reported by me, Mark Olson, and Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Shannon Lynn, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our audio engineer is Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Mike for making up our theme song. And hey, if you like The Envelope, the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple. It will really make 2021 feel special already. The Envelope is created by the journalists at the Los Angeles Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important. And the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Happy New Year.